0: please visit our website at reformedholytrinity.org. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. So we have a lot of different things going on. We are bouncing around all over the place because of these various things. Today we're back to Ephesians chapter 2. And if you remember, in starting this year, I'm kind of focusing on some things that you need to know, some things that we all need to know, and so we're looking at some things rather topically and textually, but uh, we're looking here in Ephesians chapter 2, and if you remember, we begin bringing up a conversation and a proclamation about atonement, because... That is a foreign word today, atonement. Of course, there are a lot of Christian terms that are not as recognizable as they used to be in our culture, and so it takes a lot more explanation nowadays, if you find anyone that's interested, that's the next problem. But it takes a whole lot more explanation nowadays because we just don't have that foundation in uh, the Christian foundation and a Christian culture throughout our land anymore. Uh, But so we are pretty unfamiliar with this word atonement. And so we began a couple weeks ago trying to emphasize how important that it really is. And so we are looking here in Ephesians chapter 2. And basically, um, Paul begins after his declaration Concerning um, He gives us doxology in chapter 1 concerning our redemption in Christ. And then he talks about his prayer to the church, church at Ephesus for their wisdom. And then he begins this chapter by saying, And you, God made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. The emphasis here is upon God doing the work. He's the one that made them alive they were the ones who were dead in trespasses and sins. And so we are using this aspect of sin and trespasses to bring up this topic of atonement. So last time, if you remember, we looked at the existential reality of atonement. And of course, that's just a 50 cent word that means of relating to Or affirming existence. And so what we're saying by that is that atonement is built into creation. That it naturally exists and God created it that way. Um, It is the state or fact of having being especially independently of human consciousness and as contrasted with non-existence. In other words, it's the aspect of being. Okay, It just exists. Because it is in the created order. It's part of universal law. And it's a concept that we have lost sight of. Um, in the Old Testament, they were very familiar with atonement. And it wasn't just the Hebrews. It was also the pagans. You've probably seen on movies, um, whatever religion it was, especially even in paganism, where they were offering sacrifices and incense To appease the God or the gods. See, there used to be built into everybody's worldview, regardless of your belief concerning God, that there was the necessity for atonement. And the reason why there was necessity for atonement is because that God or a God, or the gods, were displeased with man. That's not the case today, is it? Because everybody is God's little pet, he's their little buddy, he's their boyfriend, they're, they're, they're his girlfriend, or whatever the situation might be. All this weirdness that's going on in our arrogance and pride and narcissism that we have going on today. But atonement is built into the world, both in creation and also post-fall, as it was revealed. So atonement naturally exists in the world because it was decreed by God before creation, and then it was revealed by God after the fall. Then we also considered the meaning of the term atonement, so that's helpful. For us today to help understand what in the world we're talking about, and this word that's translated into the English as uh, atonement primarily is actually used in the Hebrew Old Testament a hundred and two times, especially in the first five books of the Bible. It was a big deal. Atonement was a big deal in the Old Testament. It's also translated in the uh, English Old Testament as purge, reconciliation, reconcile, forgive, purge away, pacify, uh, to make atonement, to be merciful, cleansed, disannulled, appease, put off, pardon, and pitch. (laughs) Those are all the different translations coming out of that. But what the word basically means, to cover, to purge. To make reconciliation, to pacify, to propitiate, uh, to atone for sin, and uh, to be covered if I didn't already mention that. Eastman's dictionary, Easton's or excuse me, Easton's Bible dictionary says the meaning of the word is simply at one meant atonement. atonement. The state of being at one or being reconciled so that atonement is reconciliation. Now, the Bible, in the New Testament, in the epistles, there's a lot of talk about reconciliation, is there not? Being reconciled with God, to be reconciled with one another, it's atonement. But yet we are completely. Completely at a loss today concerning this word atonement. The word atonement also means to expiate, which means uh, to appease. So I mentioned earlier, remember, in all the different religions, there was always this concept about appeasing God or the gods. But not only has it been lost. From a Christian worldview, it's basically been lost throughout every worldview in the world. Now, there are places where the worldview still exists, predominantly. But for the most part, I mean, how many pagans are really concerned about appeasing the gods? You know, they get on Facebook, and there's some Wiccan, or or they're uh, believing in Thor, or some kind of other Nordic uh, god, and... They're, they're, they're following all these trends on social media, but they have no interest in appeasing the gods that they say that they believe in, right? It's just all a facade and a show today. So it's across the board. Unfortunately, that is true with Christianity as well, is that we really do not have a doctrine or even a view to the idea Of an angry God. Jonathan Edwards sparked the first great awakening here in America with a sermon titled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. But that's not going to be preached today because we don't believe it. We have completely lost any sense of God's holiness. His righteousness, His perfection, and His justice. Therefore, here's the here's the kicker though, if God is not those things, then there is no need for atonement. If there is no need for atonement, then there is no justification, there is no salvation, there is no remission of sins. So, It is the very fact that God is holy and that man is sinful that necessitates atonement. However, we are confused even if we do have some carryover from the past, being familiar with the word, meaning that, well, we can at least spell it if we had to write it. But we really have a foggy understanding of the word because we think that the word atonement... Has to do with forgiveness. Now, in a sense, it does in certain ways, but atonement really is about justice. God will, God will get his satisfaction. On sin. That is one of the most important Christian doctrines that there is. Is that God will avenge his holiness. God will revenge the sin of man. Everyone's always saying, well, if God is this, this, why does he let all this happen? Believe me, there is a reckoning coming. God will get his ounce of flesh. So there's three or four things depending upon our time here this morning that I want us to look at. First of all, let's consider the theology of atonement. Another word, and I'm speaking specifically about theology proper. And when we say theology proper, what we're talking about is specifically the study of God. We're not talking about necessarily all the other theological doctrines that come from this. But theology proper is specifically the study of God, who he is, what he has done. Who is this God? So when we think about this God, the first thing that we do need to realize and understand, because even here in our text, as he talks about we who were dead in trespasses and sins, And how we once walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath just as others. That's how Paul begins here in chapter 2. And then verse 4. But... God who is rich in mercy. It is very essential to understand that God is holy, he's just, he's perfect. But this holy, just, and perfect God is a God who is rich in mercy. You see, there's a lot being said about God here is we look at this aspect of atonement of man in his trespasses and sins. What we find being said about God is that he's made us alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. So the analogy that's being made here is that we have completely been overwhelmed and destroyed by our sin and our trespasses. It is completely suffocated all the life out of us, we have no spiritual life, but God, who is rich in mercy, it reveals that the Lord is a God of mercy, but we cannot mistake this mercy for licentiousness, and that 's what we want. We want a God of light, who is licentious, who will indulge freedom to excess, and not be restrained by law or morality. But God is not lawless, and he will not excuse sin. He is perfectly holy. To render God lawless is to deny atonement, for atonement can only exist where there is law and transgression. So lowering the standard, removing the standard, or making God's holiness and law changeable, limited, flexible, and so on does not make God more merciful, and that's the error we have today. We believe that if God would just grade on a curve and grade imperfectly, that that makes him more merciful, and it doesn't. It makes him less merciful. It makes him less merciful and immoral. So we need to be very careful not to create a system of exceptions to righteousness because God is holy and God is angry with sin and should be fearful. And that's a category that we have to maintain the distinction. But God is rich in mercy, which is another category with its own distinctions. So God's mercy is not excusing our sin. Even though that's what we desire. We don't want forgiveness. We don't want remission of sins. Because how is there remission of sins? By the shedding of blood. Without the shedding of blood, the writer of Hebrews says, there is no remission of sins. So what we want... Is God to just excuse us, to exempt us, to make us immune, uh, to give us privilege, or because we're under, or we're disadvantaged, to give us welfare? That's what we want. But we need to make sure that we do not confuse God's mercy with excusing our sin, but understand that God's mercy is making remedy for our sin. His mercy is atonement. His mercy is making satisfaction on our behalf, as Paul says in Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He demonstrates his love for us in sending Christ to atone for our sins, but his love is eternal. It was before the world began that God loved us. And we see this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17, where he says that um, with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world. Remember, we looked at this two weeks ago to show that this, this principle of, and law of atonement is built in to creation. We also see in 2 Timothy chapter 1, where Paul says, God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given in Christ Jesus before the world began. Now, we can look at other passages of Scripture to show that before the world began, God was decreeing his mercy through atonement. But atonement is not just mercy. There are two sides of atonement. But God, before the foundation of the world, did decree his mercy In making atonement. You see, when we look at the anthropology, which is the doctrine of man concerning atonement, we come to realize that atonement really is simply this. It's payment. The wages of sin, the payment of sin is death. You have to atone for your sins. So we understand in relation to the doctrine of man. That man is dead in trespasses and sins here in our text. In verse 5 of Ephesians 2 it says. Even when we were dead in sins. Paul says for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. To understand man is to understand that man is in a sinful state. That he is a sinner. That Sin is not something that happens to him, but that he is sin. You cannot understand man without understanding that he is fallen, sinful, wicked, depraved, corrupt. Job asked the question, what is man that he should be clean and he which is born of woman that he should be righteous? How much more abominable and filthy is man who drinks iniquity, who drinks wickedness like water? Jeremiah, the prophet said, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. Jesus said, It's not from without, but it's from within that sin comes from. Jesus says, It's out of our hearts that proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, and blasphemies. So there is no excuse. You can't project it upon someone else. It can't be someone else's fault. Nope, your sins are your fault because that is who you are. So when we think about this, we also have to consider the worldview of atonement. So we've considered that God is holy, but also that God is merciful, that man is sinful, man is damned, that God's wrath must be appeased, sin must be be atoned. So what is this concept of atonement? Hebrews 9:22 says, "And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, without the shedding. Without shedding of blood, there is no remission. That should make us think of something. It should make us think of Genesis chapter nine and verse six. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. What is being declared here? Atonement has to be made. If a man murders another man, there must be atonement, and there is only atonement by the shedding of blood. In Numbers chapter 35 and verse 33, we are warned about sins and transgressions. And specifically here it says, So you shall not pollute the land where you are for blood, talking about murders, the shedding of innocent blood, for blood defiles the land. And no atonement can be made for the land, for the blood that is shed on it, except by the blood of him who shed it. See what I mean? We've lost this concept of atonement. Our prisons are full of unatoned transgressions. You see, satisfaction must be made for sin. Without satisfaction, there is no justice. Everyone's talking about no justice, no peace. No, no, yeah, no justice, no satisfaction. You have to have true justice. Or the land is defiled. In Leviticus 18.25, is. says, uh, The Bible says, the land is defiled, therefore I do visit the iniquity thereof upon it, and the land itself vomiteth out her inhabitants. You see, how holy and just is God? How serious is he concerning sin? So serious that in Deuteronomy chapter 21, even if there was someone who had been killed, and no one knew who, what, why, when, or where. Well, they knew the where, but they didn't know all the others. God said to his people that they had to make atonement for that sin. And if they didn't, they would bear the consequences of that sin. Blood had to be shed. They had to offer a blood sacrifice. We can find reference to this in relation to the prophets, talking about the land not being cleansed, not being atoned for. That's what the word cleanse means. That the land has not been cleansed and judgment came upon Israel. They were divided. They were sent into captivity. The prophets warning them about the land not being cleansed. And one of the things that Ezekiel says in reference to that says, Her priests have violated my law and have profaned my holy things. They have put no difference between the holy and the profane. Neither have they showed difference between the unclean and the clean. The land is not being cleansed. It's not being atoned for. They haven't shown the difference. Over and over again in the ceremonial law, you find the phrase, and the priest shall make atonement. I mean, it's just over and over and over. You see, everything is based upon atonement. Civil government is based upon atonement. And if it's not, you cannot have justice. Familial government is based upon atonement. And if you don't, you will not have behaved children. Sins must be atoned for, right? In ecclesiastical government, in the church, we also have atonement. But not all atonement is salvific. Right? In the sense of individual reconciliation with God. But atonement is absolute. Atonement can only be made when there is satisfaction for sins. In other words, atonement is based upon judgment. Salvation and atonement is not about being excused from judgment. We talked about that in Sunday school this morning in relation to the Lord's Supper. It's all about judgment. It's all about making proper judgment. And if you don't make proper judgment, God will. And you can say, oh, but I'm a believer. Yeah. Go ahead. Defy the holiness of God. You see, no judgment. If there is no judgment against sin, there can be no atonement. So let's consider the practice of atonement. And I'm not going to deal with civil atonement, but it should be noted that there is a necessity for and a doctrine of civil atonement that we are lacking today. But let's consider the practice of atonement specifically first for the remission of sins. Though when I mean in relation to civil atonement, I'm talking about there's, there's particular uh, atonement, And then there is uh, the same way within common grace. There's particular grace, common grace. Particular grace has to do with salvation of an individual. Common grace has to be with just the good of the whole. And so the same way with atonement. There is atonement that relates to salvation and there is an atonement that relates to law and order in society. We're not going to deal with the law and order in society. We're going to talk about atonement for the remission of our sins. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. This is the very reason why Jesus cried out on the cross as God sent him to be a propitiation for our sins. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because God is holy because he cannot dwell with sin, because he cannot look upon sin. God's wrath was poured out on Jesus to atone for sins. Jesus was the expiation for sin, meaning he is the one who atoned for the crimes of sinners. He is the one who has made satisfaction for their offense. By which the guilt is done away and the obligation of the offended person to punish the crime is atoned for. You see, atonement requires the wages of sin to be exacted. But what does the Bible say concerning this atoning sacrifice for salvation? in Romans 3:25 talking about Jesus it says whom god set forth to be uh, set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance god had passed over the sins that were previously committed why did god pass over it did he just excuse it no The only way that it can be passed over is if somebody has paid the price. The gospel is this message. Jesus Christ has paid the price. And his blood is sufficient for all the sins of the world. In Hebrews chapter 2. Well, first of all, when we talk about propitiation. We're talking about making satisfaction, appeasement. In Hebrews chapter 2, we find again this statement that Jesus Christ became a faithful high priest to make propitiation for the sins of the people. In 1 John chapter 2, and Christ himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. In First John 4 and chapter 10, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The satisfaction, the appeasement of God's wrath, atonement, reconciliation. You see, Christ atoned for our sins and this atonement requires mortification and amendment of life but it also requires of us to live in this worldview of atonement both in particular grace and in common grace. To live in this worldview of atonement as Christians. For Jesus gave his life as an atoning sacrifice for us And we have been called to give ourselves as a sacrifice for the brethren. When we talk about what Christian communion should be, we can't even have the foggiest idea of what it should be without atonement. Without understanding atonement. Without understanding that Jesus Christ made atonement for us. And so... The Apostle John says, by this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and also we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. We will never reach an understanding and confidence of our salvation. We will never reach true communion in the body of Christ. We will never reach a Christian culture in our society if we do not recover the doctrine and practice of atonement both in particular and common grace the reason why we do not possess this doctrine and practice today is because we do not believe we are sinners that is the simple fact of the matter you don't fully believe you are a sinner as you ought and neither do I and our culture definitely does not We do not believe God's standard is absolute. You see, because I have reasons. I have justifications. I have excuses. But the simple fact of the matter is, is just we do not believe God is holy and just. We do not believe satisfaction must be made for sins. Today we have exemptions, immunity, And excuses rather than atonement. We do not believe we are responsible either because we are privileged or because we are disadvantaged. Today we have a doctrine to justify our sin rather than a doctrine to justify us from our sins. So how are you going to atone for your sins? Because you can. Everybody wants to cooperate. Everybody wants to merit their salvation. Well, you can atone for your sins. Sure, you can make satisfaction by paying the wages of your sin, which is death and eternal damnation. Or, you can read here in Ephesians chapter 2, in declaring that we are dead in trespasses and sins, But God, who is merciful, has offered a free gift of atonement and pardon. Jesus Christ has made satisfaction for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Listen to what Paul wrote here in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. In which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature the children of wrath, just as others. But God, who is rich in mercy. Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and trespasses made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us to sit in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. In other words, even though and even when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, he came and paid the price. To atone for his blood to be shed. To atone for your sins. And to be buried. And to suffer death and hell. But he rose again. Not only to pay for your sins. But also to grant unto you eternal life in his resurrection. So, the choice we have today is easy. The wages of your sin is death, eternal death. You can pay it. Or, you can look to the one who came to atone for sinners. And it's in the shedding of his blood that we have received the remission of sins because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And that is why when we come to this table, we remember his body that was broken for us and his blood that was shed for us for the remission, for the atonement of our sins. Father, we thank you that Christ has atoned for all those who believe in him those who look to him in faith and repentance. Lord, we pray that you would increase our faith. Lord, we pray that you would increase our repentance here this day as we come before your table to remember the death of Christ, to examine ourselves, to discern our Lord's body, and also to give you thanks for your great grace by which you have saved us. And we ask this in Christ our Lord. Amen.